0: Hey, pharmacy friends, welcome to Capsule Production Podcast. Before we get started with the episode, I just want to let you guys know about a new podcast that I'm starting called Living Room Language. This podcast aims to kind of simplify medical things that may be a little complicated or um, things that may have a lot of myth or misconception around them like vaccines, uh, flu shots, what to take when you have a cold, stuff like that. So it kind of aims to bring it down from the medical jargon to just really simple language that everyone can understand. And I actually really need your guys' help to get this thing started, so if you could, please go to GoFundMe forward slash Capsule Production and just donate. Anything helps. I really appreciate it. Alright, that being said, let's get started with the podcast. Uh, This is the extended release version with Dr. Sven Norman. He spent some time at the Poison Control Center and has lots of great stories. Really interesting guy. I had a great time interviewing him. Uh, So without any further ado, please give it up for Dr. Sven Norman. We're going to just jump into a couple of stories here with Dr. Norman. So um,
1: we, were, we were just talking about Angel's Trumpet. So. Well, so we, so we talked about the public health role of the Poison Center and why it's important to report every case. Um, so it was a number of years ago, um, Angel's Trumpet is a, is an anticholinergic plant. Um, they, they, here in central Florida, we usually get maybe four or five cases every fall where some folks would get some Angel's Trumpet. Um, they take the flowers, they put it in a big old pickle jar and then leave it out in the sun kind of like they're making sun tea but they would put these plant particles in there and then they would uh, they called it jungle juice and so Ooh. they would take this uh, stuff and they you know when they're bored on the weekends or nothing else to do from the rural counties in uh, central florida they they take this stuff and they get high and anticholinergic hallucinations are not um, are not desirable there if somebody's really keen on, on having hallucinations there are other other <laughs> other agents to go i'm not promoting that by the way but uh, but yeah, so they would end up in the emergency part- department with anticholinergic poisoning and and uh, so forth. But um, probably back in the in the late um, oh, the late 80s, we had um, we had um, an increasing number of cases. So there was some media attention. So that could have contributed to it. You know, it's like okay, parents beware. Um, you know, this is, if your child has this keen interest in these plants, you know, be 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 wary that that could be a problem. You know, usually a teenage population. Um, uh, and so we had criticism by some folks who would say, like, you know, you're giving my child ideas. And it's like, no, we're not. We're telling everyone that this is dangerous and that this can have serious consequences. Yeah. But I think it might have increased some, uh, had it increased in some experimentation with that. But there also just seemed to be kind of in the whole uh, central Florida area that these, there was a uh, unusual bloom maybe that year. So where we would typically have a handful of cases, four to five or so, um, we had 113 cases that year. Wow. actually had national news, CBS Evening News, um, you know, came and did a story on it because it, it was really um, unusual. So we probably would have picked that up, um, but just because of the unusual nature of it and then the, the frequency with the calls and the interest of the local and um, local and state media and then the national media. Um, but, yeah, so I, th- I think that when things happen um, and, and and they're not reported it, it delays the time period of um, of when public health officials can be alerted and take the appropriate education pieces or warnings that might be uh, helpful and in, uh, in informing uh, health professionals uh, and consumers but certainly health professionals as well to keep on the lookout for this um, so you said this was in the 80s this this whole thing happened. yeah I think it was in the late 80s the Chani, Connie Chung and Dan Rather <laughs> were the were the uh, were the the anchors on the uh, the CBS Evening News at that time.
0: So that was pre-internet. Like, how did you get the word out about this kind of thing? Did you talk to local media sources to let people know there's was a danger? Or, like, how did you approach that?
1: Yeah. So that that was one of our uh, you know. So there were press. We would do press releases from the from the Poison Center, and uh, Poison Center had a really close relationship. I, I think all of them do. Um, at the time, I was at the Center in Tampa as as director. Um, we had a really close relationship, both in um, in being a spokesperson or answering their questions for uh, for what we call um, hot news or, or uh, um, active, um, you know, poisonings or emergencies that were going on. And that helped us because of those relationships when we wanted to do during Poison Prevention Week or other times of the year about um, poison prevention hazards, um, which are a little bit less exciting but to us are su- uh, super important yeah. um, because, you know, that. That uh, childhood age, you know, young parents, they are they're, they don't know necessarily, they, they want to be good parents, but they don't know necessarily what to do, how to poison-proof their home or what to do if an emergency does occur. And so we were always, um, and we have the help of uh, pharmacy students, um, you know, back then and even today of helping get the word out about poison prevention. It's really important. Gotcha. So it's probably a little easier now with the Internet and, just kind of spreading the word that way? Well, yeah, so the internet is good to get inf- information out. Um, and, and so if somebody typed in poison control, then they'll get the number and, and, and so forth. Um, as we mentioned in the other segment, um, the, the problem with people trying to be their own poison center and, uh, and assess that, that, that's a danger. And I don't, I don't know if anybody's actually studied that um, as to, oh, yeah, I mean, somebody that got into trouble ended up in the emergency room and said, why didn't you call? Oh, well, I looked this up on the internet and this Dr. is what Google, I did. Or, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, yeah that's that that's a challenge and I I think again every health professional every pharmacist uh you know calling your store coming into the store um you know you can provide some immediate information or, or you know contribute to the answering their questions but encouraging them to call the poison center um is is really the end goal um of any exposure even if it's minor because we can learn from those minor exposures as well
0: um so did you go through any other uh patterns of just crazy um Toxicology stories or crazy um, poisonings, like you said with the angel's trumpet, and then GHB at
1: one point, and then boy, I, I'm trying to think. I should have made a list of some of them because there are there are there are a lot of interesting cases. One that I talk about um, uh, when, we, when we talk about marine poisoning in the class um, is uh, a fish poisoning. I remember back when I was in my fellowship, we had a because it's it's really unique. It has these unique symptoms. Um, this. Uh, person called in, and they had been sick, and they had had been really sick, and then they were still having lingering symptoms. And the symptoms they were describing to the um, to the poison specialist was um, that when they took a hot shower, it felt cold, or when they drank a hot cup of coffee, it was cold, or if they and they had this metallic taste in their mouth um, all the time, and if they had a cold shower it would or drink a cold beverage it would feel hot so it was hot cold reversal and then this uh (laughs) yeah and so that is what we call pathognomonic, or almost diagnostic for ciguatera fish poisoning and so so i got on the phone talked to the lady and i said so um you know i I think that this could be this fish poisoning i said where where, have you done anything have you eaten anything you know she goes oh yeah i've been in costa rica for like three months um, and just returned to the u.s so she was eating fish um, predator fish, large, large predator fish that, um, then, that can uh, be, be, um, uh, contain the ciguatera toxin. And so, um, so that, that was an interesting case. Is that reversible or like how, can you treat Well, that? so there are, there are, there are some treatments. They're not super effective. It's not like anecdotal where you can give somebody something and the symptoms go away. Okay. Um, there are some treatments, but, and it can be serious. Uh, blood pressure problems, uh, we treat with mannitol. It, it's a, the, the data and the, the, uh, the reversal is not as, uh, I think, easy as, as uh, patients or clinicians would like. It's, it's, um, it's usually not life-threatening, but it can certainly be um, worrisome. I just mean,
0: also in terms of uh, temperature control, I mean, you know, if you touch a hot stove and you can't realize it's hot, I
1: mean, that's what a problem. Right, exactly. Or, you know, yeah, you get into a, well, probably not in the shower so much, but yeah, you're yeah. right. You do not have the ability to be able to distinguish them. So um somebody, one of the other interesting cases that i had and, and uh, I think uh at least the students at u f uh, that might listen to this podcast n- know this that I'm uh, interested in disaster planning and response. We have a course here at u f and and that my interest in that kind of came out of my my love and passion for toxicology because there's a, a fair amount of disasters that are that are um uh, yeah. Accidental, like transportation accidents or or uh, power plants with you know chemicals and, and that sort of thing, all the way to nefarious or uh, terrorist kind of activities. We we're using nerve gas and stuff like that. So that's kind of where my initial interest got into disaster um, planning and response. But we have this. Um, we had an incident um, where some migrant farm workers were exposed to some pesticides in the field, and we had seventy five or eighty folks that were exposed. So some of them might have. Um, really been exposed and had symptoms, and others were thinking maybe psychogenically, that, you know, like, I, I think I'm sick too, you know, kind of yeah. thing, which, you know, was real to them. But we had a, essentially a mass casualty incident where we had to decontaminate folks in the field and then take them to the hospital. So things today have much improved with, uh, with decon, both from the first responder perspective, but also from hospitals that are able to, um, you know, to respond to large numbers of patients that, that, that have been, um, that have had a, uh, An exposure to, uh, you know, to some type of uh, chemical pesticide or, or um, otherwise. So those th- those were interesting. And then we have cases that are that are really su- um, surprising. You know, I talked about the importance in the other segment about um, asking questions and asking questions in details and making sure that all the pieces of the puzzle, if you want to call it that, um, match. Because if there's something that's not consistent with what the history was, then that's a, that's something we need to think about or talk about. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you, of a, a, it's a, the, probably one of the best teaching cases um, on multiple levels that, I, that I've ever come across. Um, so um, often talk about uh, household products. It's a common, uh, you know, they're not every household, and they're um, out where kids are, and so they're very, very common. Uh, bleach is ubiquitous, and so, um, so if a child ingests a mouthful of household bleach, for most people, they're going to be really surprised that that's not a problem. Um, but there are two caveats in that short sen- one-sentence uh, history of an exposure, if you will. Um, the fact that the child ingested household bleach, and not industrial strength, and that it was a mouthful, not a glassful or something more than that. And a very, very small amount of household bleach is not something that we would be expect to be a problem or refer to an emergency room. So we had a case where, um, and, and we get lots of those calls in the poison center, and so we had a case where a child ingested um, uh, by history a witness ingestion from a bleach bottle, mm-hmm. household bleach, took a sip of it, and then had immediately started having respiratory problems and other um, more serious medical problems. So they were called the Poison Center, they'd actually already called EMS, they were on the way to the hospital. So within a probably 30 or 40 minutes after getting to the hospital, being evaluated, the child's condition deteriorated, they were, they were taken by helicopter to a local hospital, Um, and the patient died in the helicopter. And it was surprising to us. First, we were thinking maybe the patient aspirated this, maybe there was, you know, we weren't really, really sure. Um, Upon further investigation after the, uh, by the the sheriff's investigators, they found out that what was in the bleach bottle was not bleach, it was cyanide. Um, It was a chemical used by a relative that um, was a jeweler and they use cyanide in their professional jewelry cleaning, I guess, and um, that was the source of the poisoning. So, so even if you have, so there's a poison prevention lesson there, don't put chemicals <laughs> into um, other containers that are not properly labeled. Yeah. Especially don't put chemicals in food containers. So this wasn't a food container, but it was another container. So when it came time, when the accident happened or the exposure happened, they didn't really know. They're reading the label. It says bleach, you know, household bleach, three to 5% of sodium hypochlorite. That's not a problem. But so, of course, we threw that history out of, the, of that and then just treated the patient symptomatically and supportively. Um, if we had known that it was cyanide, um, it, it still might not, we might not have been able to save her because there is a specific antidote, but it's not carried on the EMS units and it may not have been available quick enough to save this child. Um, but you always want to know what you're dealing with so that you can pro- provide the appropriate treatment as quickly as possible. So that's a sad case, but one that uh, is, uh, Valuable, I think because it, it, it lends to that perception yeah. because so many, we talked about earlier, people don't call the center because they think it's not a problem or their parent told them it's not a problem or the grandparent or the neighbor or, or Google told them it wasn't a problem or, or maybe people started doing stuff that it wasn't a problem and then they actually caused more harm. We've had examples of that. Um, so um, the poison center is a smart way to go and it's a safe way to go.
0: And it's free, so why not? Like, yeah, exactly. Just, just get it out there. Um, so, what what kind of questions um, do you t- typically ask when someone calls up? So, like, someone calls up, my kid just swallowed bleach. Like, what, what kind of?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. And it, again, I, everybody, uh, I, I want everybody to know this. Those doctors in the emergency room that said, uh, "I don't know the answer. just tell me," you know, no, we we can tell you about that poisoning, but we're going to need details to be able to give you more patient-focused or specific information. Um, so, and, and we don't necessarily go down a list. It's, I mean, there is a list, and it's, in our, it's on our computer screen or, or in our head, really, but it's really more conversational. My child ingested household bleach, okay, how much? Um, and if they know, you know, so we're assimilating all this information. When did it occur? So what the product is, when did it occur? Um, are there any symptoms? Uh, do they have any existing medical problems, or are they on medications, uh, other medications? Um, sometimes knowing how it happened, not, or, uh, not knowing why it happened or how could you let your child do that, because sometimes people, you know, they don't like that how question. It, you know, we're not asking how could you let your child do this, but we want to know how to explain it to me. So if somebody says, my child ingested Pine salt. Well, and, and so did they take it from the bottle and go glug, glug, glug? Or did they stick their fingers in a uh, in a bucket that had a cap full of pine salt in it? That's a common scenario. To the parent, the child ingested pine salt. Um, you know, so they licked their fingers with a, of a diluted amount of pine salt. That's yeah. totally different than if the child went glug, 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 um, you know. So... The answers to those questions um, help paint a picture. I used to have a poison specialist that worked for me, and she said, you are my eyes. Paint help. You know, paint the picture for me. <laughs> Tell me what's happening, what happened there. Here's an interesting case. Um, there was a child that was, uh, so the, the mother didn't call. She was shy or nervous or scared, or I don't know why. She gave the phone to her 10-year-old child and said, here, call the poison center. The kid, the call, the kid called and said, yeah, so I, my baby brother just uh, ate a plant um and they and we said okay do you know the name of the plant no they didn't so today i don't know if they take a picture and send it to the poison <laughs> center or they can google that That's maybe that would you. be helpful but um but we didn't know the name of the plant and so we said okay so what's he doing oh he's just laying there and he's just laying on the floor okay mm-hmm. anything else and he goes his lips are blue he's like okay um hang up the phone call nine one one, and then you know go to the hospital and take the plant with you and so so that happened, and then shortly after that, we got a follow-up call, or they, they called us, or we, we contacted the emergency department and found out that the child was there. He was totally fine. He was probably just sleepy. The blue lips were due to the underside of the leaf of the plant that had a purple dye on it. So, of course, we had no idea, yeah. but, you know, we hear unresponsive child or child just laying there with, um, with, blue, lips. with blue lips, you know, we're not going to take a chance. We're sending them in. So. <laughs> got to get all the information. Yeah, so, so the questions that I mentioned are... Um, are definitely important. And people should not be threatened by them. It's really so that we can give the most accurate assessment. Let me give you one other example. Yeah, of course. So a child, um, so in the intended use of the product, we don't always ask that, but sometimes we do. So in the early segment, we talked about methanol. So there's a product up north that they use as a gas line antifreeze, and it's called Heat H-E-E-T. Mm-hmm. There's also a product called, that we use nationwide or maybe worldwide, um, that's called Heat H-E-E-T, which is an analgesic rub. Oh, okay. It's not methanol. Yeah. It's methyl salicylate. So methyl salicylate is a, a counter irritant that you put on, you know, like Vingay kind yeah, of thing, put on sore muscles and so forth. That contains meth. Uh, that that's a salicylate or an aspirin-like product that can be problematic, but um, but it's not at the same level as the methanol. So the intended use of the product is sometimes a legitimate and an appropriate question to ask
0: just to so kind of differentiate what, what they actually took. Yeah. Because heat, exactly. yeah, can mean a bunch of different things. Um, did you ever run into the, um, what was it, the dextromethorphan thing? I know that was really popular when I was in high school. People were drinking, like, an entire bottle of uh, Delsum or something like this. And...
1: Yeah, so so dextromethorphan, you know, definitely is a, a toxic substance and, and very possibly due to poison data collected by poison centers of folks that ended up with a. a, a Fairly uh, significant degree of symptoms or problems, um, that data very possibly could have been used by the FDA to help, um, at least in or in some some states to to uh, regulate the um, the amount and uh, of uh, dexamethasone that can be sold. Um, so um, so substance abuse is is, is clearly um, you know clearly an issue that, that where problems wax and wane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know so GHB. You know, it usually starts on the east coast and the west coast, and then it ends up in the middle part, middle America, <laughs> and then it kind of filters back out to the, uh, um, you know, to uh, uh, other parts. Um, so, um, so one of the other more interesting types of cases that we get sometimes are um, regarding bites, uh, bites and stings. And so we've had um, interesting cases where, um, where, where a patient will, uh, will. Describe being bitten um, and, and to try to distinguish it by a snake uh, whether it's a, a pit viper like a rattlesnake or a water moccasin versus a coral snake which is a neurotoxic um, uh, venom which can create a whole different set of problems. Both are serious if, if the patient was actually um, envenomated. Um, and so there have been cases where uh, there have been delays in evaluating um, the patient or the snake and which type of antivenom uh, to give. And um so it's important to have uh, as as much information as possible um, there have been shortages of uh, of antivenoms that have existed uh, of the, uh, primarily the uh, the coral snake antivenom which have created challenges and uh, kind of rationed its use for in cases in the past we probably would have uh, would have given antivenom um, so one interesting case was a, a, a uh, a group of folks. So it seems that like we talked about *Angels Trumpet*. So Though this is kind of in the same category, they were, they were making mushroom tea. It was a group of teenagers. You know, nothing to do into the school year, out sitting in the park, and they had gotten a bunch of, uh, um, bunch of mushrooms and had put it in a jar and let it <laughs> seep and made this mushroom tea. So they're sitting around drinking this tea, and uh, drinking this mushroom concoction, and. Um, and so the guys are passing around, and one, one guy didn't want to do it. He's like, ah, I'm not interested, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. But peer pressure, of course, finally got to him, and it was yeah. at, at the very end of the, of, the, of the concoction, so he just took it and finished it off. And so um, within about 24 hours, he ended up in the emergency room, and he was sick, and kind of vague symptoms, nothing really specific. And um, so they sent him home, gave him, you know, said, take some Tylenol and you know go home. And so uh, so the next day, I came back, and his condition had deteriorated, so he ended up tra- um, transferred to another hospital uh, and was um, uh, being evaluated, and they didn't really know what was the matter with him. A resident had recently gone, one of the residents who wasn't taking care of the patient, that had recently gone to a tox conference and said, you know what, that looks like it might be Amanita phylloides, which is death cap um, mushroom poisoning. And so, good. so they're like, um, so you, know, you need to look into that. So the poison center was contacted at, at that point, and we got involved. And it was uh, pretty classic. And then this history of the ingestion. One of the, one of their guys, one of the other guys was sick. The, other one, the others were not. Um, the other one wasn't, wasn't, did not deter, uh, progress to the level that this kid did. So the kid ended up being transferred to another hospital and was placed on a transplant list. He was in a coma, um, and he was uh, really very, very close to death and had actually been given pri- um, number one priority for the next available, compatible liver. And um, so he was very fortunate is that there was almost a, a perfect match that was available um, from in the southeast region um, and was able to get a liver and um, came out of his coma and uh, and, and, and survived. Um, so the teaching points, so the interesting <laughs> points of that for, for, for my students, um, for everybody, is... Don't, don't, don't drink mushroom tea. Um, but the other one is, um, is, why did this guy get sick and the other students did not? Or the, the other, the other uh, guys, the other um, people did not, the other um, folks that drank the tea. Why didn't they get sick? So if you remember, I said he drank the last bit of it. So this was a, not, this was a suspension, not a solution um and they, there wasn't a label that said shake well before we use it so he got the most concentrated um, so he got the, he got the um the supernatant he got the the um the concentrated amounts of the uh, substance and the you know the particles um, that were left. so he got the concentrated form um, that resulted in the hepatotoxicity um, that damaged his liver um, requiring a transplant so that had a happy ending um but um it was a, a scary case and very fortunate that somebody that they detected it early enough to really consider a toxic exposure. Um, I don't know. They may, he might have been on a transplant list, regardless if they didn't know the reason why. But um, but anyway, that that did have a, um, a favorable outcome. So don't drink mushroom tea. We'll keep that in mind. That's don't right. Given the peer pressure. And if something happens, you know, know that the poison center is available. And I think that um, I think that as health professionals, um, whether you're going to actually be in and helping folks. Um, you know, helping take care of poison patients in some fashion or preventing poisonings, um, or just uh, uh, recommending to folks that have, uh, have suffered an exposure that this is a resource that they can, that they can use to get help.
0: Uh, just for the folks listening, can we get that phone number one more time for the poison? Experience? Yeah, it's
1: 800-222-1222.
0: Not too hard to remember. So, yeah. all right, Dr. Norman, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks. That wraps up the extended release version of the podcast. Uh, Before I go, I just want to remind you guys to please help me get the Living Room Language podcast started. Uh, Please go to GoFundMe forward slash Capsule Production. And uh, I want to give a big thanks to Dr. Sven Norman for being on the podcast. He was a lot of fun to interview. Uh, Big thanks to Jeff, Amy, and Maher, my Capsule Production team, for making this podcast possible. And lastly, I want to thank Sephiros for providing the music. The song's called Celestial, and you can find it at freestockmusic.com. Thanks, guys. I will see you next week.